This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. The wealthiest people hold more of the wealth in America than they have since the Great Depression. At the same time, purchasing power for many low-income workers is declining. The very wealthiest saw their fortunes grow by more than 25% in 2018, while the poorest workers saw their wealth decline by 7% over the past 15 years. So, what responsibility do corporations bear to their workforces and their communities? What can businesses do to remain profitable while closing the widening wealth gap in America? My guests today know a thing or two about it. Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, founders of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, have been groundbreaking leaders in responsible and profitable business for decades. They are examples any good business owner could learn from, and I'm thrilled to share our conversation with you. Americans to fight for our country and to keep it, you know, true to serving its people. And when it doesn't do that, it's immoral not to stand up and say something. The national average now finds CEOs making 361 times the average worker. Since the 1960s, tax rates on very high incomes have been slashed dramatically. Starving public investments in schools and roads and everything else needed to build our economy and providing ever greater incentives to rig the economy's rules to send more money to the top. The laws we've created to govern globalization have protected corporate interests but done nothing for American workers. Instead, we've allowed workers' rights to be systematically dismantled, both here and abroad. Policymakers also began using high unemployment, which hurts everybody but especially low- and middle-wage workers, to protect the wealthy from any hint of inflation. And then corporate interests pushed to abandon safeguards preventing the financial sector from making risky bets, which had to be backstopped by American taxpayers when those bets went sour, a protection not given America's underwater homeowners. All of this created the worst economic crisis since the 1930s. And we did it by allowing those with the most economic power to set the rules of our economy. It's a huge deal when life expectancy drops at all on a major sign that something is wrong. Yeah, and I know, you know, I want to give credit presidential candidate Andrew Yang has been one of the only ones who, who ever really talked about this. However, so, Charles, what can we 
owe much of this drop to. I know we look at drugs, suicides, but I also saw in that report that decline in manufacturing jobs in the Midwest, particularly I think in the Ohio River Valley, is almost directly correlated to this drop in life expectancy. So there's a there's a complicated and hard to untangle uh, web of causation going on there. It's certainly the case that uh, declining employment, which is largely a function of deindustrialization, is itself connected to lots of other worse outcomes: greater risk of abusing painkillers, lower likelihood of marrying, uh, lower social connection, greater risk of labor force dropout, and then all of those factors are in turn linked to things that lead to these deaths, which include chronic drug use or risk of suicide. Um, and I think part of what's interesting about the story of who is causing this life protection decline, who's dying to drive down life expectancy, is it is people in the deindustrializing Midwest. It is predominantly former blue collar workers who are sort of left behind by the rise of the college educated dominance of the economy. The problem today is that uh, inequality is at its highest that it has been probably ever. And we have the greatest inequality in the developed world and the greatest in immobility of our society. What kind of power? People power! Hi, I'm Ben. I'm Jerry. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm Jerry. Yeah, I'm Ben. I'm Jerry. And he's he's Jerry and I'm Ben. We're working to get Bernie Sanders elected president. Sorry, not sorry. When I first started this podcast, you were both one of the first people that I wanted to interview. Um, because I feel like your legacy is so much more than ice cream and people don't realize that. And really, the whole concept of the podcast is to shine a light of, you know, on amazing people doing amazing things. And you both fall into that category. So first of all, thank you for all the work you've done throughout the years to make our world a better place. I appreciate you. Well, thank you. We're honored. I'm honored. Are you honored, Jar? I, I am also honored. He's also honored. <laughs> Well, thank I, you for honoring us. You're welcome. I want to. Uh, I want to first start off with your story. Can you tell me how you guys met? Well, we were in the same gym class in seventh grade, and we were running around the track. And you know, we were the two slowest, fattest kids in the class. <laughs> so it was everybody running around the track, and like half a lap behind, it was me and Jerry. And you have a bond with whoever it is is back there with you running around the track because it's, you know, it's embarrassing. He was a great guy to be at the back of the pack with. When I was in high school, I, I decided while I was doing Who's the Boss that I would go to a regular high school because I felt like I was missing out on so much of, of my adolescence. And of course, I get to high school and no one would talk to me. And then nobody would talk to you. No, Why? because I was on TV. So they thought I was like they treated me like I was an alien. But then there was this one girl who showed up in the second semester and she showed up with a bandage on her nose. And I was like, hmm, I bet she'll talk to me. <laughs> and I still I still speak to her to this day. She's still one of my great friends. Oh, that's great. What was wrong with her nose? Uh, she had she had just gotten a nose job. <laughs> uh huh. All right. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, the outsiders always wind up finding each other, is my point. Yes, yes, exactly. 
the rejects. I mean, I was a reject because nobody would buy my pottery. I was trying to be a potter, and Jerry was a reject because he couldn't get into med school. Med school, wow. Yeah, he's a smart guy, really. Wow. He's a national merit scholar. He was a mathlete. Wow. Pottery's cool, yeah, too, though. That's, that's all you can say when you <laughs> find out someone's a mathlete. Wow, exactly. <laughs> and I can tell, Ben, that you're the chatty one, huh? Today, <laughs> I, I happen to have lettered in orchestra in high school. Wow. What, what instrument did you play? Cello. Cello. Yeah, I didn't play it very in tune, but uh, I still got the letter. Well, that's awesome. So how did we get to ice cream from cello, pottery, and math? How did Ben and Jerry's come to be? Well, I think as as Ben mentioned, we were pretty much failing at all the things we were trying to do. Ben was making really great pottery, but of course people didn't recognize how great it was and they didn't want to spend their hard-earned money for it. And I had applied to numerous medical schools uh, and was rejected from each one individually. So we decided to do something that we could try to have fun at work together, and we'd always like to eat quite a bit. So we just thought we would do something with food, and we just picked ice cream. We didn't know anything about it. So at that time, I'm trying to think at that time, what year is this? Well, you mean all the years that we were failing at things or the year we picked ice cream? The year you picked ice cream. (laughs) We picked ice cream, I think, about 1977, and we actually opened up our little Ben & Jerry's shop in 1978. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm Jerry. You know, we may not have the money to go on TV for 30 seconds, but we sure do make some of the best ice cream you ever tasted. Look Look for us on top of every pint. We did a lot of research. Yeah, we got all these uh, pamphlets from the Small Business Administration. We had like this huge like file box full of them. They cost like 10 or 15 cents each. And, you know, they would tell you all the different parts of business, you know, how to, how to pick a site, how to do your break-even analysis, how to do your marketing, how to pass your health department inspection. I think they were all down at the local post office, weren't they? What? Is that where they came from? I think that's where you could pick up the little pamphlets from the Small Business that's, that's Administration. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a beautiful system. It worked great for us. At the time, what? I mean, the, I can't imagine there was a lot of ice cream on the market then other than like, you know, Breyers or, or Haagen-Dazs. There, there was not, you know, the gourmet ice cream trend that we see now. And I feel like you guys revolutionized that. Well, we picked Burlington, Vermont, because it didn't really have any significant ice cream shops. We were not interested in uh, competing. So they had like one kind of very middle-of-the-road mainstream brand that was sold in the, in the bus station. And then they, the, up at the university campus, the university was making their own ice cream. But at the time, it was a renaissance of uh, homemade ice cream in the U.S. And, you know, homemade ice cream parlors were starting to open up around the country. In the Northeast, there was Steve's Ice Cream in Somerville, Mass. He was making it in a 
big five-gallon rock salt and ice ice cream freezer in his window. And in the on the West Coast, there was Uncle Gaylord's. So, you know, those those were kind of our heroes, mostly Steve's. And we opened up in an old gas station using a rock salt and ice ice cream freezer that we we had in the window. Hanging out there uh, on a limb uh, on the cutting edge, it gets, uh, it gets kind of lonely. And, uh, you know, those of us who, those few of us who have been working on trying to integrate social values into business, uh, we're constantly seen as uh, freaks and criticized. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard for us to find uh, community. feel like social activism has always been a part of your business model. Um, is that true? And if so, why was that so important to you? I think it was something that more evolved over time. I think initially when we had our ice cream shop, we were interested in being a community-based store. So we threw little festivals and we were a gathering place for people. Uh, it was on a very small scale. Well, and we had uh, the first free cone day after we were in business for a year. We gave away free ice cream to everybody for the day. And then we started our free outdoor walk-in movie series. And we had our fall-down celebration. And, of course, we were donating money or ice cream to the various groups that knocked on our door. But in terms of engaging in advocacy on social or political issues, you know, when the company got larger and got a higher profile, the press was interested in talking to us. And uh, I figured if we were going to talk, we may as well talk about uh, social and political issues, uh, you know, use the platform to try to improve the quality of life for, you know, the general regular old people. I can totally relate to that feeling of I'm being given this opportunity to talk about something. I may as well take advantage of this and talk about something substantial rather than, you know, in my case, how I prepared for a character or acting or anything like that or a dress that I wore on a red carpet. To me, if someone was passing the microphone off to me, I was going to say something that was potentially helpful, you know, whether it be erase stigma or, you know, shine light on the marginalized. In, in 1985, you established the Ben & Jerry's Foundation uh, basically to fund community-oriented projects, right? Yep. So I'm wondering what was going on in 1985 that you felt like you needed to to do that. Was there something going on politically that you guys were caught up in, or was it just a community aspect? Uh, it was at a time when Ben & Jerry's was starting to become more successful and prosper, and it was actually coupled with a public offering of raising money for the company. And so at the time, we established the Ben & Jerry's Foundation as the charitable arm of the company because essentially we saw business as uh, an entity that that is 
dedicated to making money so that if the company was going to be making money, we wanted to donate some to nonprofits. And at the time, Ben and Jerry's was giving seven and a half percent of its pre-tax profits to the foundation, which was the highest percentage of any publicly held company. Yeah. I mean, in a way we wanted to, we established the foundation so that we could be clear to potential shareholders that seven and a half percent of their profits uh, was going to go to this foundation so that they should, you know, so they would therefore be investing in the company knowing that and they couldn't complain about it later. these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. (laughs) Just kidding. Sorry. No, Uh, we're not all equal. Inequality, in fact, gets a ton of attention these days. President Obama called it, quote, the defining challenge of our time. But usually when people are talking about inequality, they're talking about income inequality. And income inequality is at its highest level since the Great Depression. Before taxes, the top 1% take home about 22.5% of the national income. Really think about that for a second. For every dollar paid in income in the U.S., almost a quarter of it goes to the top 1%. A quarter. But income inequality is actually less dangerous than its cousin, wealth inequality. The top 1% hold closer to 40% of the national wealth. So for every dollar in American assets, that's home, stock, savings, all that, 40 cents of it belongs to the top 1%. The top 1% holds more wealth in America than the bottom 90% of the country combined. When we talk about the economy today, we have got to understand that tens of millions of Americans are working in wages which are totally inadequate. We not only need to create jobs in this country, we need to raise wages. Our goal, this is not a radical idea, but our goal must be that any worker in this country who works 40 hours a week is not living in poverty. Raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Not seven and a quarter an hour, but $15 an hour. $15 an hour. $15 an hour over the next few years. The greed of corporate America and the billionaire class has got to end, and we are going to end it for them. In my business, having straight teeth is so important. And for me, that meant making sure my teeth were perfectly straight with Candid. If you're unhappy with your smile or self-conscious in photos, you have to check them out. They deliver clear aligners right to you and straighten your teeth for 65% less than braces. And the best part? They are totally invisible. You can transform your smile without anyone noticing a thing. And you never have to set foot in a doctor's office or a waiting room. Your treatment is prescribed remotely by a licensed orthodontist, and Candid delivers everything you need 
right to your door. Unlike other companies, Candid only works with your orthodontist, never general dentist. That means your treatment will be designed by an expert in tooth movement with 20 years of experience on average. Looking ahead to a wedding season or a special event? With Candid, the average treatment length is just six months, and you'll start seeing results way before then. Learn more about Candid's process and get a complimentary 3D scan of your teeth at a Candid studio near you. It's the simplest, freest way to get started. Are you ready to take the first step towards straighter teeth? For a limited time, you could get started with $75 off by using code SORRY at candidco.com slash sorry. That's candidco.com slash sorry. Use code SORRY for $75 off. Candidco.com slash sorry. Code SORRY. So you guys also, you coined this phrase linked prosperity, which I love so much. Will you please talk about that a little bit, uh, what it is and how it works? Well, it's the idea that as the business prospers, the employees and the community should prosper as well. So we had a compressed salary ratio at the time so that the highest paid person in the company couldn't get paid any more than five times what the lowest paid person was getting. You know, this was in an era when the normal salary ratio was 40 to 1. As you know, today, it's more like around 350 to 1. And the other link was the foundation and also the way that we had sold shares earlier which was that we we only made shares available to people who lived in Vermont, our neighbors. So the idea was that we wanted to set it up so that uh, the community was not dependent on some generosity or donations, but that the community would actually own the business. And, you know, when we did that, Vermont public stock offering, one out of every hundred Vermont families became an owner of Ben and Jerry's. Well, also, Ben, I think it extended to how the company tried to source ingredients. Mm. The company made a commitment to source fair trade ingredients, which guaranteed paying a fair price to small farmers that were producing commodities like vanilla or coffee or chocolate. And in Vermont, the company has a program called a Caring Dairy Program, which pays a premium to Vermont farmers who are following certain practices that lead to more sustainable farming. And so the idea of linked prosperity, as you mentioned, is not just that the company makes money, but as the company makes money, uh, it shares that prosperity with other stakeholders. Yeah, it's it's kind of the opposite of Trump's business philosophy. <laughs> you know, I I was amazed hearing Trump. You know, I don't know. I guess understanding who the guy is, I shouldn't have been so amazed. But you know, he said, you know, there's a lot of business people who say that. 
a good deal is when both parties feel like they got a good deal, when both parties feel happy at the end of the negotiation. He says, I don't believe that. I think in any deal, there's winners and a loser, and I'm always the winner. The real estate markets crashed. Now, I don't want to blame the real estate markets because I always made a lot of money in bad markets. I love bad markets. You can do very well in a bad market. And that's not what we believe. And we've demonstrated that it doesn't have to be that way. Well, I think now more than ever, this idea of a corporate social responsibility is so important to fight against what Trump is doing and, and that mentality. But also this idea of not only as you're taking care of uh, your own prosperity, but also giving opportunity to family farming and taking care of the community aspect, as well as just the the health of your your customers. I mean, you were two of the first people that came out, you know, against hormones in food. And I remember that. And I was like, what do you mean there's hormones in my food? And so I think it is so uh, cyclical um, when you take care of, of your community, when you have a, a social justice heart and mentality that goes beyond just your own prosperity, but that also means you have to take care of your community and those that are, are fighting for the same things that you are. Uh, you know, it, it's true, but the interesting thing is those things also happen to be good for business. It's not as if caring about your community or being a compassionate business takes away from your ability to be successful financially. Uh, I mean, it just makes common sense that as you take care of your employees, as you take care of your suppliers, as you take care of the community, that, that all of those groups in turn support the business because they're all benefiting. The idea that business would be concerned about social justice uh, is a relatively modern one. Uh, traditionally, business leaders in this country thought that uh, any initiatives that would advance social justice were really outside the objectives of a typical business enterprise. And in fact, to the extent that uh, some initiatives to advance social justice um, might cost some money, they were actually antithetical to the business enterprise, which is primarily, of course, to make profits. So when the laws first started to push businesses to uh, engage in a certain amount of uh, social justice uh, initiatives, the businesses kind of begrudgingly went along with it. Did you face opposition to this business model? Huge opposition. Yeah. Tell me a little uh, bit about that. Well, I guess the predominant business philosophy that that they were teaching in MBA schools at the time and that had been around for a long time was, you know, uh, a little excerpt of, of Milton Friedman's philosophy, which was that the only valid purpose of a business is to maximize profit. And it it was not, you know, it was not considered to be good good stewardship 
to expend any time or effort or resources on doing anything besides the the narrow self-interest of the business. And so, you know, we would be invited to speak at business schools, I guess because, I don't know, people were hearing about this business growing rapidly and... Uh, and they knew we would bring ice cream, Ben. <laughs> that must have been it. <laughs> and, you know, and then we'd come and speak there. And, you know, the professors were, you know, were were kind of saying, you know, we were uh, crazy, naive, stupid. Uh, well, that it was going to be the downfall of the business, that essentially you you could not succeed that way or you could not compete that way. And was that the only way you were willing to compete? Yeah. That was the only way we were willing to compete. You know, I think, you know, when you go to church or temple or, you know, you read any of these spiritual kind of things, you know, they're talking about caring for each other, caring for your brother, your sister, you know, helping those that are less fortunate, helping people that are oppressed. I mean— that's a lot of what that God, religion, uh, spirituality talk is about, isn't it? I believe so, yeah. But unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, right. well, we've gone so somehow far from or that. other. Uh, you know, business people set it up that, well, yeah, yeah, that's all good, and we go to church or temple on Saturday or Sunday. But in the world of business, we just throw all those concerns out the window mm, mm. and. Uh, you know, I mean, it is what disingenuous, hypocritical. I mean, we're human beings, and the idea that we don't have any responsibility to each other just because we happen to be organized as a business is, to put it mildly, full of shit. One in seven children in the United States suffer from hunger. At the same time, we're giving billions and almost a trillion to Wall Street just for bailouts. Something needs to change. We need an economy for the people and by the people, not by the rich and for the rich. Well, and it's fairly common now for businesses to be much more engaged in, in what you would call social responsibility. I think early on for Ben and Jerry's, there were a handful of companies that were pioneering, that were kind of trying it out, that that they – we certainly didn't know how it was going to work out. Stonyfield Farm Yogurt was doing it. Patagonia is still doing it to a great degree. Dr. Bronner's. But we were just trying to figure it out as we went along. You know, I think I think one of the things that really happened to Ben & Jerry's was that Along the way, Ben decided to use the voice of the company to talk about issues, uh, and, and sometimes they were somewhat controversial. They would really, uh, they were not agreed on by everyone, and and that put Ben and Jerry's into a different sort of category. It's interesting because as I fight for social justice. Um, I, I've lost endorsements. I've lost commercial money. I run the risk of, of alienating such a huge part of a potential audience. And everyone always told me my whole career that I should 
you know, stay in my lane and and not speak out. Were you worried at any point that you were losing money, that you were losing customers, that maybe this wasn't worth it? Uh, no. <laughs> Good for you. you me know, either. I, it, it was. That's not the kind of thing Ben worries about. <laughs> <laughs> it was the only way we wanted to do business. If we couldn't do business like that, we didn't want to do business. And, you know, I always kind of thought that, you know, if we take a particular action, some people are really not going to like it. And some people are going to like it a whole lot. Right. And some people are going to decide not to buy our ice cream. And some people are going to decide yeah, we really want to buy ice cream from from those from those guys. And all all I can say is what we've demonstrated over the years is that we've taken lots of social stands. I think the social stands have always been on the side of social, economic or racial justice. How we got into a point where we can have high corporate profits, when businesses can be doing so well, but the workers don't necessarily share in that prosperity. Well, this has been at least a three-decade-long trend. Now, there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. Some of it has to do with technology and entire sectors being eliminated, travel agents, bank tellers, uh, a lot of middle management. A lot of it has to do with globalization. Uh, The rest of the world's catching up. Post-World War II, we had just some enormous structural advantages because our competitors had been devastated by war. And we had also made investments that put us ahead of the curve, whether in education or infrastructure. Those advantages went away at the same time as workers increasingly had less leverage because of changes in labor laws. You combine all that stuff and it's put uh, workers in a tougher position. So some people who just control enormous amounts of wealth, we don't resent their success. On the other end, just as a practical matter, you know, you're going to have problems making sure that we're investing enough in, in the common good uh, to be able to move uh, move forward. So you supported Farm Aid. Uh, you joined a campaign with the Children's Defense Fund. You've been taking a stand on many issues, including the environment. Uh, 2000, you created in 2000, which, by the way, I don't even know... You weren't born then, were you? No, I, I was born in 1972, but thank you. <laughs> uh, but you created this this flavor in 2000 called It's One Sweet World to help fight global warming. Um, you've partnered with Rock the Vote. You, This is my favorite. You delivered a 900-pound baked Alaska to the U.S. Capitol lawn, which is my kind of activism. So are you still fighting for those same issues now? Have the issues evolved? Are you fighting for different issues? What what worries you now in this day and age? Trump is president. Um, the world feels more chaotic than ever before. What keeps you up at night now? Uh, what keeps me up at night is trying to figure out what more I can do to help get Bernie Sanders elected president, because I think that that will solve many of the problems that we we currently have now. Why Bernie? Tell me why you love him. You know, I've been Bernie's constituent for 40 years. I have seen him in action as a mayor and as my congressman 
and as my senator. And he has always been steadfast in working for social, economic, and racial justice. And I'm passionate about that. And that's what Bernie's life is all about. And he's, he's incredibly effective. It's so, it's so amazing to have a, a politician that represents you that actually represents your values and somebody who is driven by this passion for justice instead of this passion for collecting uh, large campaign donations from uh, corporations. Please welcome to the stage national co-chair of the Bernie 2020 campaign and co-founder of Vermont's own Ben and Jerry's, Ben Cohen. (laughs) Hello, everybody. (laughs) What a beautiful day for ice cream in Montpelier. You know, uh, before Bernie, Jerry and I used to be the most famous guys from Vermont. (laughs) So now we are happy and proud to pass that distinction on to Bernie. I mean, ice cream is good, but a president of the United States who truly believes in justice in all its flavors? That's euphoric! Uh, You know what? I think the thing that I love the most about him is the fact that he appeals to so many different people, so many different demographics. Um, And his policy just makes uh, sense in a human way. And so often we listen to politicians and they, they it feels like they've ripped the humanity out of what they're they're doing and humanity out of politics. Um, and I think that anyone that listens to Bernie, you you feel that he he cares. And you also know that there's a, a real specific plan there. So are you going to get out there and campaign for him for 2020? What are your plans for 2020? You betcha. I'm actually going to get out uh, this evening on a flight at six o'clock and go out and campaign for him in Iowa. Yeah, I'm one of the four co-chairs of Bernie's campaign. So, you know, and, you know, I thought about it, you know, somebody was interviewing me and they were saying, what do you like about Bernie? And I was saying that, you know, he has this passion for justice, social, racial, and economic. And I realized that, you know, I have the same passion and the best way for me to make my passion reality is to support Bernie. And so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I think it's really nice when a when you find a candidate that becomes just an extension of your own ideology, especially when you're campaigning, because it allows you to, I think, speak not just from their talking points or what they're trying to get out as far as the campaign goes, but just on a personal level. And I think anytime you're, uh, you can speak to something from a personal place, it's what changes hearts and minds. Yeah, I think that's true. I I think, you know, so often with politicians, all you can use to decide whether you whether you believe in them or not is is what they say. 
you know, there's a lot of talk. And with Bernie, there's been a whole lot of action. I mean, he's a guy who's been walking his talk for for 40 years, and he doesn't get swayed. So in the campaign four years ago, both Ben and I were surrogates for Bernie. You know, what I love most about Bernie is he is not for sale. Yeah. Uh, he has total integrity. And in the last campaign, Ben actually came out with his own personal ice cream flavor for Bernie. What was it called? It was called Bernie's Yearning. <laughs> I love it. It was essentially mint chocolate chip ice cream, except all the chips had risen to the top into one huge chocolate disc, just like 90% of the wealth created over the last 10 or 20 years went to the top 1%. That's and, brilliant. Uh, the way you ate it was to take your soup spoon and whack the big chocolate <laughs> disc on the top into little pieces and mush it around into the ice cream where it's supposed to be. Okay, so then how I need to ask you how you come up with these flavors and names for your social justice ice cream flavors. Well, believe it or not, for me, I come up with the flavors by channeling the collective flavor unconscious. <laughs> is that like a, is that a spirit? I wake up with that flavor in my head. You know, some other people might talk about it as divine inspiration, but that's how I do it. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's interesting to understand uh, Ben is clearly a genius, especially when it comes to ice cream and dessert flavors. He could not describe to you how he comes up with these things. Uh, you know, when we were out on the campaign trail for Bernie, people would come up to us and ask us about, uh, was Ben and Jerry's going to come out with a flavor? And, you know, we, we always told them Ben and Jerry's as a company doesn't support candidates and it's nonpartisan, but Ben realized he could personally come up with one. And you know that it's kind of one of the interesting things uh in in the situation for Ben and me is that people often think that things we're doing individually are done by the company, which is not necessarily true. And they also think that things that the company does are always supported by Ben and me, which is not true. But I don't know that if in this point in our lives, we're ever going to change that. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. First off, what does your report say about buyers today? What do they want to do with their dollar? They want to buy on beliefs. They want brands to stand up on issues that matter to them. Two-thirds literally say, I will buy a brand 
or I will boycott a brand if it stands up on issues. That's a huge change in the marketing ecosystem. And is part of this coming from a lack of confidence in our elected leaders? Are people saying, I can't trust government to do what's right? I can trust the brands that I love to do what's right? Again, more than half said to us, I think brands are more effective in dealing with the social issues of our time than government. And also going back to our trust barometer, actually only 30% of Americans trust their government. So we have a void and brands are being asked to fill that void. What do you think is the the single most important issue going into the primaries? I think there's there's two issues. I'm sorry, I can't come I can't narrow it down to to one, but I think that it comes down to experience. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people now that are running for the Democratic nomination that are essentially running on so many of the platforms that Bernie introduced in 2016, right. where everyone was telling him he was crazy, and now these things are starting to be mainstream. But the reality is that there's no one else who has this progressive agenda, who has been there in the belly of the beast in the House and in the Senate for the last 30 years. And so he understands how it works. He understands the ins and outs. And and he really understands that there's no way that he alone once he's elected president, can accomplish the changes that are needed, that it needs to be an army of of people, an army of his supporters that are going to continue to work with him and press these issues to create the, you know, the huge changes that are needed so that our economy is no longer rigged in favor of the wealthiest and the corporations, and that we're able to finally put an end to structural racism and, you know, the the prison industrial complex and the Pentagon industrial complex. It's going to take all of us. You know, this is his slogan. It, it It's not about me. It's about us. And you know he he's there you know he'll he'll be the leader but it's not going to happen if if there aren't a whole lot of people behind him well i feel like you know with the landscape of how many people are running under the democratic ticket it feels to me that people are just running for brand identity at this point it's going to help with book sales it's going to make them a household name so that they can then capitalize on it and and there is something I think that we need to get back to, which which is experience. And I think we got a little bit away from that. Um, as much as I loved Obama, let's be honest here, he was learning on the job for eight years. And I think Michelle in her book talks about how, you know, they were very new at this. He had only been a senator for so long. So I'm and now we look at Trump, who's a, you know, a, a train wreck and obviously has no experience at all with humans. So, I mean, I 
I am going to lean towards these candidates that have more experience, that that know how to deal with, um, you know, international policy, that that understand what it what it takes to bring a country together again. Because that's the thing that I'm most worried about is the divisiveness that's going on right now. I mean, can't we just send everybody ice cream? Ice cream. Everybody loves ice cream. <laughs> that always brings people together. Yeah. That's a good solution. Uh, people, when they're eating ice cream, are usually not ranting and raving and yelling at each other. No. it's. Ve- I would think it would be very hard to rant and yell when you're eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So there we go. We've solved all the problems. Once again, it just comes down to ice cream. <laughs> much like my life. <laughs> well, thank you so much for all of your work throughout the years. I think this idea of corporate responsibility, uh, no one does it better than Ben & Jerry's ice cream. And I'm so happy that you stuck to your guns and said this is the only way that you're going to do it. Because your success is uh, an inspiration and something that should be looked upon and studied as to how t- to be a success but still give back to the community and how just because you're running a corporation doesn't mean all of those ideals that we hold true and our moral compass and our religious beliefs and soul should be ignored, that all of those things can work together for the success of not only the country but customers and the prosperity of a company. So thank you. You know, Where are the resources in society? How are those resources really created? The resources we're going to need to deal with all these societal challenges. Well, there, I think the answer is very clear. They're in business. Why all wealth is actually created by business. Business creates wealth when it meets needs at a profit. That's how all wealth is created. It's meeting needs at a profit that leads to taxes and that leads to incomes and that leads to charitable donations. That's where all the resources come from. Only business can actually create resources. In 2019, Jeff Bezos saw his wealth drop by $9 billion due to a divorce settlement, and he's still the richest man in the world. That's right. He lost more than the annual GDP of at least 20 countries and is still so rich, nobody can catch him. And yet, until very public pressure forced Amazon to raise minimum wage to $15 per hour, more than half of its workers made less than $28,000 per year. They earned 10% less than the national median income while laboring for the world's richest man. I'm talking specifically to the Republicans now. 
and those who complain about food stamps, welfare, Medicaid, housing benefits, and other social safety net programs. Hear me, because this is important. We need those programs in large because of situations like this. Huge corporations and extremely wealthy business owners like Bezos and the Walton family use these programs, your tax dollars, as an excuse to not pay living wages and benefits to their workers. You'll notice they never seem to take Smaller bonuses, stock payouts, golden parachutes, or other multi-million dollar perks, but their workers can't afford housing or food or health care or any of the other basic necessities in life. Now, if you have a problem with social safety nets, then you should be demanding that these incredibly powerful and wealthy people pay their workers instead of themselves. It's corporate welfare going to those who absolutely do not need it. I can already hear you screaming socialism and redistribution of wealth. Well, guess what? You can't redistribute something which has never been distributed in the first place. The vast amount of money in the hands of so few has been taken out of communities across America. You're purchase at Walmart doesn't fund your schools. It funds the Walton's next mega yacht. As your town's roads and infrastructure get worse and closed storefronts appear on Main Street, Jeff Bezos is personally funding a private space flight company. How many $15 an hour Amazon workers do you think will end up on those luxury junkets to orbit and back? Businesses have a responsibility to their workers and to the communities where they operate, period. That's it. The deal has always been hard work for a fair wage, but not anymore. When someone can lose $9 billion and not notice it while their employees are losing their homes to enable this extreme wealth, something is fundamentally broken. It's going to take a good corporate governance and, more importantly, good government to fix. We live in the new, roaring 20s, and we know how the last go-around ended. We need to act now, before it's too late. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.